you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. We began our walk through the book of Acts almost a year ago, and between a couple of trips to the Philippines and some other breaks in the series, we made it through chapter 12 at the end of October, and so now here in the new year, we're jumping back into the book of Acts at chapter 13. Uh, We, as a church, along with followers of Jesus around the world, have just been thinking on and rejoicing in the coming of Jesus to seek and to save the lost. The birth of Jesus announced that God had come into the world to bring salvation to everyone who would repent and believe that Jesus came to the earth on a rescue mission. Luke records the the birth of Jesus, as well as the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus in his gospel. And he talks about this rescue mission that Christ had come on to, to seek and to save the lost. And here in Acts, Luke opens up this second volume of his writings, stating that this that in this one, he's going to tell us all that Jesus continued to do and teach. We find that this salvation mission of Jesus was not over, that he was continuing to work to save his people. However, if you read through the book of Acts, you note that by verse 11 of chapter 1, Jesus has ascended into the clouds to the right hand of of the Father. So how can Jesus continue to work if he is no longer here? We soon find out that while Jesus' physical presence was gone, he continued to teach and to work on earth through the words and the deeds of the apostles and throughout history through the words and the deeds of all the followers of Jesus. And since even now he continues to do just that, Acts is not something that's just history, but rather it's an invitation. It's an invitation for us to join in on the unstoppable, ever-expanding Spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. In this spread of the good word about Jesus, it's vital that Jesus would send his spirit. And so as we think back and sort of recap what's happened in the book of Acts, that happens early on as there's a task that's laid out and then the power for that task is given on the day of Pentecost with the coming of the spirit in chapter 2. The task that the Spirit was coming to empower his people for, what he's still empowering us for, is found in Acts 1.8, that the followers of Jesus would take the good news of the gospel and be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, telling everyone of God's redeeming love. Jesus is still working on the earth through his Spirit, which indwells all true believers, and he's accomplishing this purpose of spreading the good news of the gospel to the ends of the world through we as in spirit-empowered witnesses to the gospel. Acts shows us also that there's opposition to this plan, Uh, some of it from the outside through persecution and imprisonment and murder even, and some of it from within the church. However, amidst all this opposition, the gospel continues to march on. The word continues to increase. It spreads in Jerusalem, and then it spreads out from Jerusalem as a result of Stephen's death. 
It reaches Judea and Philip takes it to Samaria. Peter opens the door of salvation for the, for the Gentiles with, through his message to Cornelius and his family. And from chapters 8 to 12, the church is beginning to wrestle with and grapple with the fact that now non-Jews, Gentiles, are coming to believe in and follow Jesus as their Messiah and Lord. This shift in audience leads to a shift in activity as the multicultural city of Antioch becomes the center of the church's activities rather than Jerusalem. Which brings us to the end of chapter 12, where a key figure in the early church was brought to Antioch by our friend, the son of encouragement, Barnabas. And that man's name was Saul. We saw his dramatic conversion in chapter 9, which led to him from being a persecutor of the church to a man that was now persecuted by the Jewish leaders because of his proclamation of Jesus as Savior and Lord. And here in chapter 13, Saul, from here on out, known as Paul, becomes the central character of the book of Acts as he leads the charge to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so in this second part, as it were, of our series in the book of Acts, we're going to travel with Paul. We're going to be with him on his three missionary journeys recorded in chapters 13 through 20. And then we're going to watch him on trial for his faith in chapters 21 through 28 until he finally lands in Rome under house arrest, but still preaching the gospel in the capital of the empire and doing that unhindered. So that's where we're heading. But before we take that journey, take just a brief moment with me to remember that Paul wasn't the only Christian that was taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. John Stott, speaking of this second half of Acts, says this. He says, quote, Luke is inevitably selective. To begin with, he concentrates on Paul's exploits to the west and north with his eyes on Rome and says nothing about the church's expansion east and south or about the missionary adventures of other apostles. For example, of Thomas, who, according to the Syrian Orthodox and Mar Toma churches of Kerala, traveled from Syria to India. Thomas took the gospel to India. Even in Paul's travels, Luke is selective according both to his available sources and his editorial purposes. So Stott is reminding us that the spread of the gospel to all nations was not something that was done solely through Paul. Rather, there were others that were streaming out from Israel, taking the good news of Jesus to all the surrounding nations. The kingdom of God and the work that God is doing was doing and that God still is doing is always much wider and much greater than whatever is reported or written down. There are things happening that we will never know about. But what is written down here is important. And so Stott also says that Luke recorded the events and the speeches that he did here in Acts for specific purposes. And so as we read through this narrative, we're going to ask questions like, why is this story included here? Why in all of of, of uh, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas's travels and all that they saw and all that they did. Why does, why does Luke record this? Why does the Spirit give us this? Why is this import, an important part of the story of the early church? And why do Christians throughout all the ages need to know this? Because these are the stories that the Spirit has preserved for us. So why are these important? So then with that as a background, we, we find these first stories. And this is how Luke starts the second part of Acts and begins to unfold this story of the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Look with me at Acts 13, and let's actually read the last verse of chapter 12, and we'll read through 13, 12. 
12.25 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to island as far as Paphos. They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil! You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This text could seem simple, but in it we're on the, the cusp of an explosive expansion in the church to the ends of the earth. But before we see the, the fireworks, we're taken back to Antioch to a key moment in church history. And in this moment, and in the first steps of Barnabas and, and, and Paul on their missionary journey, this is what we find. This is what we're taught, I think, from this passage We'll say it like this, we can trust and expect that God will set apart servants and supply them with what they need. Let me say that again, we can trust, or we may even just get rid of that we can and just say trust and expect that God will set apart servants and supply them with what they need. God is at work. And he's working through spirit-indwelt people. He has work to do in this world, and he's chosen to do that work through his redeemed children. And as he works, he chooses specific people for specific tasks. We've watched him do that in the book of Acts with Peter, with Stephen, with with Philip, and with others. And now we're going to watch him work through Paul and Barnabas. And as New Testament believers, we also trust and even expect him to still do that in our church in the worldwide church, and even in our own hearts and lives, that he will set apart people among us for ministry. He may set you apart for a specific ministry. Maybe one that goes to the ends of the earth, maybe one that stays here in this city. And as he works through us, we can trust that he will supply those who are set apart to serve him with everything that they need. We can trust and expect that God will set apart servants and supply them 
with what they need. As we think on, think on this truth, I want us to just hang our hats on two headings. The first heading is going to be set apart, and that's going to summarize verses 1 through 3. And the second heading is going to be supplied, which will summarize verses 4 through 12. Set apart and supplied. So let's begin with verses 1 through 3, set apart. Uh, the setting of verses 1 through 3 is the church in Antioch, and more specifically, it's a meeting of the church to worship and pray. As in Acts chapter 2, before the, the Spirit came, amazing things happen at the supposedly mundane meetings of the church. This is an encouragement. Don't ever miss church. You might miss something amazing, because that's where God seems to start things, and that's where he does amazing things, is when God's people gather together to worship and pray. While we've moved north of Jerusalem, and while both churches were filled with the same spirit, the church in Antioch is filled with very different people from the church in Jerusalem, in large part because Antioch is a, a cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic city. History teaches us this about Antioch, but Luke also helps us to see this fact in the list of prophets and teachers that were found in the church. You might imagine going to the church in Antioch's webpage, and if you saw the tab for leadership, and you clicked on it, this is who you would find. First, you'd see our good friend Barnabas, who was a, a Jewish man. He was a Levite in particular, and he was from Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean Sea, east of modern-day Syria and south of modern-day Turkey. Remember Cyprus, because it's going to show up again. Uh, Simeon is the second man that's listed, though it says that he was also called Niger, which means black. And so it's not far-fetched to imagine that this was actually, that, that Simeon was a black African. Some people actually think that, that this, is, this Simeon is Simon of Cyrene, who is the man who carried Jesus' cross in Luke 23, 26. Cyrene was an ancient city in Libya, and Mark 15, 21 seems to indicate that, that Simon's sons were known in the early church. And so this could be true. Uh, Lucius is next, and Lucius is clearly said to be from Cyrene, the city in Libya. So we find another African man here in the leadership of the church in Antioch. Fourth is Menaean. Menaean was likely a Jew who grew up in Israel, but what's surprising about him is that he grew up as a friend of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, the man who killed John the Baptist. He may have been a local boy, but he certainly was a surprising convert and a surprising leader in the church of Antioch. But God had rescued him and made him a prophet and a teacher in the early church. And then finally, we meet Saul. And Saul, it's noted, is from Tarsus, which is in uh, modern-day Turkey. So pause for a minute and think about these five guys. Can you sort of see their faces um, can you think about them working together to teach and to lead this church in Antioch? What a wonderful expression of the grace of Jesus extending to people from all walks of life and diverse ethnic backgrounds. What a, a great reminder that the church was founded by women and men from many nations and that their faces probably didn't look at all like the flannel graph figures that some of us grew up with. This was a diverse, multi-ethnic church what an amazing thing. This is what the church has always been. And this is what the church, what we desire the church to be, isn't it? That we would reflect the city that we live in, which is diverse. And that our leadership too would reflect that. 
So here are these five men gathered in Antioch, leading the saints through their spirit-empowered gifts of prophecy and teaching. And not surprisingly, they're moved by the spirit to see the gospel spread, to, to see the gospel spread towards the lands that many of them came from. They wanna see the gospel go out towards where they are from. We find that it's while the church was worshiping and fasting that a setting apart happened. Two of these five leaders are singled out and marked for specific work. Interestingly, no detail is really given about the work itself. It's simply the work that God had for them. Just note that God may set people apart for a work and then not be really clear right away about what that work is. But clarity of the task will follow the clarity of the call. A clear call to ministry is not always clear about what form of ministry that's going to take. But Paul and, and, and Barnabas were clearly set apart. Two questions to try to maybe bring clarity to this situation. Um, first, who did the setting apart? I'll ask you that. Think about it. Don't just have me ask the question. Who did the setting apart? Who was setting apart Paul and Barnabas? I think the first answer is the Holy Spirit. God was doing this. The church is worshiping and fasting and the spirit speaks exactly how he speaks. We, we don't really know, but it was in a way that the church in a unified way understood that he was saying, set apart Barnabas and Saul for a specific work. So God through his spirit communicates with the church. And there's our second answer, right? Who was doing the setting apart? The church, the local church did this. It's interesting how it's stated, isn't it? It says, uh, in verse two, that the spirit says, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the spirit was setting apart, but in some ways the spirit was telling the church to set them apart. The spirit tells the church to set them apart. The church then fasts and prays more and then they lay their hands on Barnabas and Saul and send them out. How does God work in his salvation mission in the world today? In the same way, he works by his spirit through local churches. While we rightly look at this and we highlight the work of Barnabas and Paul, let's not forget that the church, the church is, are the ones that sent them out. And it's the church still today who partners with the Spirit and with those called out to accomplish God's purposes in this world. It is you, Grace Fellowship Church, who are partners with ministries and missionaries through prayer and through financial support to send out those whom God has set apart for specific work. Don't downplay that. Don't ever think that that's not an important and vital role in the church. Why did Paul go out and do this missionary journey? because the local church set him apart, prayed for him, and supported him. It would have never happened otherwise. Well, the next question after seeing who did the setting apart is who was set apart? The answer is obvious, Barnabas and Saul, right? But more generally, it was those who were already leading. It was people that were leaders in the church, and it was those with a unique call to ministry. It was people with proven spiritual gifts that God was using to bless the church. It was, it was people that the church saw and recognized that they were being used by God to bless others, right? Uh, thinking about these things, about who did the setting apart and who was set apart, 
and, and having a desire in my own heart and trusting that you have a desire that we as a church would be used in a similar way. These are the questions that sort of come to my mind. If this is how God works, if he works by the Spirit through the local church to set apart people for ministry, then these are the things that, I, that come in my heart that I offer to you. Three questions. First, are we coupling our worship and our praying with fasting? Two acts, there's worshiping and there's praying, both are coupled with fasting. If we really desire to see God at work, it's going to overflow in worship and in prayer, but it's also going to be coupled with fasting. A fasting that says, God, we want to know your will. and We want to know it more than we want food, more than we want Facebook, more than we want our phones, more than we want anything else. We want to know what you want us to do. So are we coupling our worship and praying with fasting? The second question that rises in my heart is, are we looking for leaders and listening to the Spirit? Are we looking for leaders in our church and are we listening to the Spirit? We should always, as we interact with one another, we should be aware of who is amongst us and be aware of how they are uniquely gifted and called to serve in God's kingdom. And we should be listening to see if God would have us set them apart for leadership within our own church, but also maybe set them apart to send them out. Are we looking for leaders? Are we listening for God's spirit specifically about who he would send out? That's what the spirit says in this moment. Are we ready to hear him say that to us? Are we coupling our worship? Uh, First, are we coupling our worshiping and praying with fasting? Second, are we looking for leaders and listening to the Spirit? And third, are we willing to support and send out those amongst us? Are we willing to support and send out those amongst us? If the Spirit helps us to see people being used by God in specific ways, then we need to support them, whether locally or or nationally or internationally, we need to support them financially and in prayer. And it may be that God would send people out from amongst us to minister in this wide world. He's done that, hasn't he? He sent people out from us that are doing ministry in the United States and doing ministry overseas, people that we love, people that we benefited from, that we grew underneath their ministry. But we send them out. You know, look at who the church in Antioch was told by the Spirit to send out. Barnabas and Saul. I don't want Barnabas and Saul to leave my church. If I'm a church, if I'm the church in Antioch and the Spirit says, you need to send out Barnabas and Saul, I say, I'm not totally sure that that's who you want to send out because I like these guys. Barnabas, the son of encouragement? I want Barnabas in my church 24-7. I don't want Barnabas to ever leave the church. And saw these great gifts that he has? Wouldn't they want to keep these guys close? But they're willing to send them out. They're willing to send out two of their beloved and best leaders to see the gospel go forward in the world. Church membership means that we hold tight to one another as a church family. But we also hold loosely to one another. We let God use those that he desires to, even if he wants to take someone and use them in a place far away from us. We trust that he knows what he's doing and we desire the gospel to go forward. Well, transitioning then in verse three, these brothers are, are sent out. And in verse five, we, signed that, we find that they also had John Mark with them. 
as an assistant, maybe an assistant in ministry, maybe an, an assistant in practical matters, maybe an assistant in, in both of those things. Um, and their first destination is the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean. Uh, this was surely where the Spirit led them, but it was also, we should, we should also note that this is where Barnabas was from, right? This is his home island, as it were. This is where he lived. And I'm sure that Barnabas wanted to take the gospel to Cyprus because that's where he was from. Think about this and just kind of note it. God's spirit and our personal desire, personal desires are not always at odds. God can use what and who we love in his plan. Contrary to popular opinion about how God works in missions, he's not a God who delights in sending people to places that they hate. If you say, I don't ever want to go to this place, don't think that the common logic is, well, that's where God's going to send you. Paul might send you to a place that you love with people that you love so that you can share the gospel in a place that you love. And so they arrive in in Cyprus at Salamis. I keep looking at that and wanting to say Salamis, but that is not what it is, I don't think, okay? Just FYI. Um, So they arrive at Salamis on the east coast of the island of Cyprus, And then they make their way all the way across it to Paphos, which is on the west coast of Cyprus. If you were to get in a car, beautiful Google Maps is a wonderful thing. If you were to get in a car and drive from the ancient city of Salamis to Paphos, it would be about 115 miles, which is basically, I looked this up, is that that's almost exactly the distance from Louisville to Indianapolis on 65. So if you want to think about how big this swath was about 115 miles. It'd be like you walking from Louisville to Indianapolis. So they were in, in Cyprus for a good while. And as they're, they're going, they're ministering specifically in the Jewish synagogues. And they eventually arrive in Paphos. And there they meet this magician named Bar-Jesus. And this is where we see our second heading, which is supplied. Supplied. We don't have a lot of specific information regarding anything else that happened on this 115-mile trek across Cyprus. But this account of what happened in Paphos is included, at least in part, to show us that the Spirit, having called Paul and Barnabas on this mission, is going to supply them with everything that they need to accomplish God's purposes. Here's what happens, okay, just to summarize the story. Bar-Jesus, called Elymas, is a false prophet and a magician, and he was a man of some influence, it would seem, within this town because he has the ear of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus would have been appointed by Rome as the governor of the entire island of Cyprus, and we're told that he was a man of intelligence. So, of intelligence. so this is a pretty high-ranking guy and a smart man. Uh, somewhat surprisingly, we're also told that he calls for Paul and Barnabas. He wants to hear from them what, what they're teaching. I wonder if it was something maybe that they had been working in Cyprus for some time and that news about what was going on had spread. Sergius Paulus heard about it and said, well, I want to hear what these guys have to say. Well, this happens, this, that, that Sergius Paulus calls Paul and Barnabas to come to, to, the, to him and to talk to him. And this ticks off Elymas. For some reason, he probably had Sergius Paulus in in the palm of his hand, and and he sees this potential for influence over this influential man beginning to, to fade, possibly to these guys from Antioch. And so he opposes Paul and Barnabas. And in so doing, he opposes God himself. 
just a side note from my fellow Tolkien nerds, I can't help but see Elemis as Wormtongue in The Lord of the Rings, who's talking to King Theoden. That's what he reminds me of, just a squirrely, nasty guy. But anyways, Paul sees what's happening. Paul sees what's going on with Elemis. And filled with the Spirit, he locks eyes with Elemis. And this is what he says in verses 10 and 11. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And those aren't empty words, are they? Because it happens. Elemis is blinded, and this man of influence now has to be led around by the hand. And in response, not only to the sign, but also we find at the end of that of, of verse 12, in response to the teaching of the Lord, Sergius Paulus believes in Jesus. Part maybe of what's going on here is that this is parallel to chapter 8. Do you remember when Peter shows up? Um, it, after Philip had preached the gospel to, Samarit- to some Samaritans, and there's this guy that, um, I, I, I've, for, I've forgotten his name, um, but Simon the magician is, is causing problems, and you remember that strong rebuke that Peter gives to Simon the magician? I just wonder if Luke is helping us to see sort of this mantle passing from Peter to, to Paul. But also, I think considering about what we see the Spirit, how we see the Spirit working and how God is supplying his servants with, with what they need, there's three things that just I, I want to point out from this, this section about how God supplies us with what we need for the ministry he calls us to. First, God supplies us with wisdom to engage the intelligent. God supplies us with wisdom to engage the intelligent. We're we're told that the gospel is foolishness to those who are wise in this world, and that's true. But we also find that Paul and Barnabas were able to engage with a man who was smart enough that Luke, in describing him, takes the time to say, this was a guy of intelligence. So I think this guy was, was pretty smart. He was a very learned man. But by God's grace and through his spirit, their teaching made sense to Sergius Paulus. And, and he received it. He received it as gospel, as truth. What this teaches me and what I think it should teach us is that we don't need to fear speaking the gospel to the intellectual or the academic or the intelligent that we come in contact with, even if we're not as smart as maybe they are. The gospel is deeper than any science or any philosophy in this world. And God will supply us with words to not only articulate the deep things of God, but even to confound the wisdom of the wise. Know this, if God sends you to a person of great intellect and you feel intimidated by that, trust this, he will supply you with the words that are needed. And he is the one who will open their mind and their heart and their eyes and their ears. God will supply us with wisdom to engage the intelligent. Don't be scared because someone is really smart that they will never receive the gospel. It happens here. God supplies us with wisdom to engage the intelligent. Second, God supplies us with boldness and power to rebuke the wicked. God supplies us with boldness and power to rebuke the wicked. 
Elemis, it would seem, he's a magician and he's a man of some distinct power of some kind. But when Paul sees that, that he is seeking to distract Sergius Paulus from the clear path of faith, he rebukes him. He rebukes him hard, doesn't he? I mean, the words that Paul says are bold. He calls him out for who he is and he announces judgment on him and what Paul says happens. There are many people, there are circumstances and situations that would seek to distract those that we know and love from staying on the straight way of faith in Christ. Things that would deter people from coming to know who Jesus is. They would take them down a a crooked path so that the gospel fruit would die before it ever has a chance to grow. There are paths of sinful indulgence, substance abuse, love of money, materialism, depression, workaholism, laziness, and so many other cares of this world that will distract people and keep them from faith in Christ. There are distractions to our children that will keep them from faith in Christ. But by God's Spirit, we can pray and we can rebuke these distractions and these demonic disruptions. God has given us his spirit. And by giving us his spirit, he has supplied us with the authority and power to shut the mouths of enemies and to thwart all the plans of the wicked. Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, something that he knew very well. He said, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Brothers and sisters, I think this is in here at least in part to remind us, to help us not forget that we are in a battle for eternal souls, the souls of men and women and children, and that there are elemises all around us, false prophets who would make God's straight paths crooked. But God has supplied us with the weapons that we need, with, with weapons to destroy arguments, weapons to bring down all distractions, weapons like prayer, weapons like faith, weapons like love. So I encourage you in the name of Jesus to rebuke the enemies that would seek to distract your friends and your neighbors and your loved ones from the straight path of faith. And as you rebuke them, know a third thing, that God uses distractions and oppositions and opposition to ignite faith. God uses distractions and opposition to ignite faith. Elemis thought, That was his first problem. Maybe he was thinking too much. But Elemis thought that he could detour detour Sergius Paulus from faith. And instead, he became an on-ramp to Sergius Paulus' faith. And so too, all of the distractions to the gospel's advance will in the end actually serve to bring glory to the Father and, and bring more people to faith. This is why I think Satan has to be the most frustrated being in the world because everything he does actually turns for God's will, for what God wants it to be. I'll give you an example. 
<clears throat> some of you recently read an update from some IMB missionaries that we know and love that I won't say by name because we record our sermons. But this is a story, some of you read this, and if you didn't, I'll let you know about it later. But this is a story from an update that shows how God can use distractions to ignite faith, okay? He writes, several months ago, because of my history in martial arts, I began looking at karate schools in our city, the city that they're heading to to minister in, for both myself as well as my son. I found one in particular that is the exact style of martial arts that I have done for so many years and was even within walking distance of our house. After our long overseas flight, we had a short window to make it through passport control and security before boarding our last flight. Unfortunately, the plane finished their boarding process before we made it to the gate, and we were not allowed on the plane. We were issued another ticket for a flight that would not be leaving for several more hours. In those hours, we fought aggravation, discouragement, and exhaustion. They fought Elemis. They fought something that was discouraging and seemed to take their straight path of faith and make it crooked. However, the time eventually came and we successfully boarded our final flight. While waiting for all of the passengers to board the plane, a man with two teenagers boarded. I couldn't help but notice that they were wearing clothing with the karate school logo that I had researched in the months prior to our move. And to top it off, they sat right in front of us. Due to language barriers, my first attempt to talk to them was unsuccessful and resulted in misunderstanding. But during our flight, I remembered that while checking our luggage at the beginning of our trip, I was forced to stuff my karate belt in my backpack. How random is that, right? Once we landed, I showed the gentleman my my belt. Upon his excitement, he asked another passenger if they could translate. I found out this man was one of the teachers at the school. He was quick to get my information, invite me to come train, and even requested a group picture with him and and my family. I tell you this story because it is clear that God's work had already started before we ever stepped foot in our city. And the seemingly small things like switching my belt from a checked bag to a carry-on, getting delayed in an airport, and missing our final flight, God is in control. Isn't that encouraging? He's in control of all things, even opposition, even the Elemises and the false prophets and the people that want to make crooked ways or, sh- or make straight paths crooked. He's in control. I was encouraged to say that God is in control when we lost our meeting space and when we didn't meet our budget. That's a distraction, isn't it? I think, I, I, I don't think, I know, I lost sight of that recently. I think I've been seeing these things as inconveniences, things that we just sort of need to get through, that we need to, to get past. But what if God wants to use all these apparent distractions, these strikes against our church and our mission to ignite greater faith in us and others and to widen our ministry rather than narrow it? What if we, I, stopped apologizing for the fact that we meet at three o'clock and instead tried to think about how we could use that and capitalize on it? What if we learned about how to really rest on a Sabbath and invited our friends and neighbors to join us uh, to, to take rest on Sunday morning and then come join us for church? But what if we sought to look for people who maybe work late on Saturday night or have to work on a Sunday morning and say, you know what, we've got the perfect service for you. We meet at three o'clock, come on by. What if we were able to see the blessings of our mobility and the blessing of our ability to partner with other churches in ways that many people don't, 
How many churches do you know that have continual joint services with another fellowship to learn and grow with other believers? I don't know many. What if we saw the blessing of that? What if we thought about this not as a holding pattern, but we look to see how God might want us to thrive where we are right now? That this is not, that this was intended as a distraction, but it could be used as something to ignite greater faith? What if we viewed our difficulties and the roadblocks that we faced as opportunities, as on-ramps for God to ignite faith in us, in others, and to glorify himself? Doesn't hurt to try, I guess, right? Well, Acts invites us again to join in on this unstoppable, ever-expanding, spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. And as we do that, we can trust and we can expect that God is going to set apart servants, you and me. And he's going to, if, when he does that, he will supply us with everything that we need for the ministry that he calls us to. He's going to set us apart and he will supply us with words to speak to the intellectual. He'll provide us with boldness to rebuke all opposition. And he's going to use all our distractions and any opposition to instead ignite faith. In some ways, that's what the cross says, isn't it? It's, the, it's what we're going to pause and remember now through the Lord's Supper. That what people meant for evil, God turned for good. The betrayal, the mock trial, the crucifixion of Jesus were evil and crooked, and they were intended to derail God's plan, just like Elymas wanted to derail the gospel getting to Sergius Paulus. But instead, all of these things brought the gospel about. They accomplished it. Through all of this, Jesus was able to take the punishment for our sin upon himself and offer us his righteousness. Through what, through what was wicked, God opened the way of salvation. And now he calls us down the straight path of belief. He calls us to repent of our sinful rejection of him and to believe that he has done everything that was needed to save us, to humbly bow before him as our Savior and Lord.